0: I just want to commend a summary of fasting to you. I've honestly never heard a better two-minute explanation of what fasting is. Uh, that was incredible. And so next week's preach, which has something to do with fasting, you can just skip. Um, because that was really good. And on the subject of prayer and fasting, I'm not sure if you're aware that um, Gateway Shopping Center probably exists because Christians pray it. Honestly, and I know you may not be going, oh yeah, Gateway is such a blessing to society right now, but what it did economically, I know, well my uncle, I'm just going to name drop, my uncle built Gateway, um, he was the kind of project manager of the whole thing, and he talks about how in the beginning there was potential for it not to happen, and churches went from site and prayed, because they wanted that to happen in the area. The ICC in Durban exists because Christians prayed. And some Christian then decided to invest in faith. Um, we have a democracy without a civil war because Christians prayed. Um, and so when you fast and pray for stuff, things really change. The, if we worked out just how powerful our prayers were we do it a lot more um and so if you have the time to pray for Clive, uh know that it's going to do us some good uh, and we're actually right in the middle of potentially buying uh, so we found a spot there's some challenges with it it could come right there's other people who want to make an offer on it so if you could just pray that god bankrupts them in love uh and uh, and allows if this is the right thing for it to happen if it's not that then we wouldn't be able to get ourselves into trouble by thinking it's a good idea and it isn't but um Yeah, that aside, we've got an exciting thing to talk about today. Um, We are going to start in slightly depressing areas, then get sort of theological, and then finish, um, I suspect, with something deeply reassuring and quite inspirational. That's the plan. Uh, And so I want you to start in that depressing area by thinking about times you've let someone down. Okay, that that moment where you go, oh, Flip, they... They're hurting, they're annoyed with me, and they are absolutely right to be annoyed with me. Parenting is a great opportunity to experience this feeling of having let someone down. It's like a, just a journey and failure most of the time. Uh, and m- little uh, Dubisani, my son, he, um, <laughs> he started walking early, which everyone thinks is supposed to be so great because all parents are competing, uh, but it's actually bad because it means he can walk while he's still very dumb uh, and uh, spends more of the time that he is f- physically able to move around being... Foolish, and so uh, he has hit his head so many times. But I remember um, because I'm the you know the, I'm in charge of recklessness and fun at our home. Um, I had him jumping on the bed. He was nowhere near smart enough to be doing that. Uh, I'm standing on the one side of the bed, thinking he'll definitely fall this way. And then you know how babies in mid air, he's a long way above the bed. Suddenly, because his head is so much heavier than everything else, now it's the boo, is the Afrikaans way of saying upside down, and it feels better. Like the, the most lowest point is the highest point of my child, and And he's also moved off where the bed is. And so now he's a meter above the level of the bed, which is a meter above the ground, head first, about to head down. Um, And I was in that split second, so vividly aware of the face of my wife, (laughs) when she discovered that this had happened, that I launched myself, John T. Rose style, across the bed, caught his ankle just as it disappeared out of view, and landed holding him, like, inches from the floor, and I was like screaming and shouting, and no one saw. Um, But... (laughs) But aside from that one sort of great success, there'd be plenty of other moments where I just, you know, playing in the waves and birds going, he's choking, he's choking. And I'm like, oh, flipper, you know. Um, and causing a number of occasions, and I hope you can think of the number of occasions where, you're like, honestly, you've let someone down. you oh, I didn't want to hurt them. I didn't want to fail in that way. But I have, and they are totally right. They're totally justified to be disappointed with me. Or if you've ever realized that something was your responsibility when you hadn't been taking responsibility for it. I have this clear memory um, of when we did the Sunny Warner series last year, the second time around, and um, I was just bent out of shape because I was annoyed that the two people who were supposed to be taking responsibility for creating a bunch of activities uh, and activations and cool stuff during the week, just, I felt like they dropped the ball and we weren't getting the value out of that series that we could have, and I was having a full moan in the preacher's meeting uh, about the fact that one of these walks hadn't happened, and then um, someone calls up the minutes, and next, and the action point of organizing the walk was Paul Taylor, and I just remember, like, <laughs> all the blood draining from my face, going, grubs, that was my responsibility, and I not, not only didn't do it, but I'm accusing everyone else of having um Drop the ball, or or perhaps you've in a smaller thing dropped the ball consistently enough that now you're actually worried you have a reputation for that. Have you, have you ever had that sneaking like they're probably not gonna give me that opportunity or not gonna tell me that story because they're expecting we're gonna gossip about it. Or they're not gonna be inviting me to that thing because they're expecting me not to turn up without having replied. Or they're not gonna necessarily give me that chance because they've decided that I'm irresponsible or unreliable in some way. And it's a terrible nagging idea. I wonder. Have I got a reputation for something that, you know, because I've consistently made that mistake enough times um, that they're just not going to trust me in that area again? The whole Proteus cricket team falls into that category, doesn't it? It's like another World Cup is coming and we just go, I just can't even emotionally invest because whether it's like... Cullinan and Richardson or Klusner or John T. Rhodes or someone much more recently than that. It's just like every time they will find a way to make average bowlers look like impossible to hit and you just go, I just can't watch. I can't do this again. Um, I'm trying to think of other sports metaphors like supporting Rory McIlroy at the moment. It just feels like on the Sunday he's not going to hit a single putt in the hole and it's just not worth watching and getting emotionally invested. Whatever it is, that feeling of I've blown it. And now this person that I'd love to trust me can't even watch because they're just expecting me to fail them. Uh, I know this will be hard to imagine and and really quite a controversial thing to say, but um, my Land Rover is sometimes not as reliable um, as it should be. And I can remember there was a time when I had a starter motor issue because the English, knowing how good they are at creating sound electrical systems in cars, then decided to employ the French to build the starter motor for the Defender. It's like going, I'm bad at humor, I'm gonna ask Germans for advice. It's just like, what? And so um, there's a French starter motor in my English vehicle, which is a recipe for success. And I remember there was a point where this thing wasn't working. I'd just like bury my head if I ever had to start the car while people, particularly Toyota drivers, were around, because I just knew it it will start 10 times out of 10, and then in this moment, I just know it's not gonna start. It's blown it enough times, it's got a reputation with me. Um, I wanna talk about How potentially we get into that space with God? There's some niggling part of where you just go, I think. I know God's perfect and unconditional and stuff, but if in my heart of hearts, I think maybe he puts his head in his hands when I get into that situation. Because here we go again. Have you ever wondered if God feels that way about you in some area of your life where it's just like she, oh, don't put her in that spot because she is definitely going to let you down in that spot. And I wonder if God like turns his back, you know, and doesn't watch. The penalty shoots out because he just knows here we go again, um, and we're going to look at does that moment happen? What does it mean for us if we think that moment is happening? And so we're going to look at Father Abraham. Um, and so if you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to take them out; otherwise, it'll be behind me. We're going to go to Genesis 15 and 16 and look at some moments where um, this hero of faith, this absolute prototype of what faith looks like, managed to blow it, and then what that meant in his relationship with. The father. So we're going to Bible study this, seeing as we're in Bible school mode. Um, and so I hope that you are ready for that kind of brain power this weekend. But the first verse of chapter 15, sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision. You'll notice there's no ham because his name hasn't changed yet. It's about to change. And if that's news to you, um, it will become clear shortly. But at this point, he's called Abram. And in a vision, uh, the Lord said to him, don't be afraid, Abram, for I'll protect you and your reward will be very great. And let's just stop right there. Sometime later, what's just happened before, right? What's the context? The context is clearly in play here. Otherwise, the, the chapter wouldn't start with sometime later. So the thing that's just happened earlier, before sometime later, um, is one of the first battles recorded in human history, actually. Um, and we got to go to Israel last year. I took a few um, olive tree folks. And... Abram has chased up to the very north of Israel, up towards the Damascus area, um, and he's chasing after his cousin, who's been, um, Lot, who's been captured, and also a bunch of other innocents in the process have been captured and taken away. And Abram, with with his trained men from his household, 130-odd badass household, if you've got 130 professional (laughs) um, trained men, chase off up past a place called Dan. Um, Dan called Dan because the tribe of Dan went there because they were too lazy to actually kill the invaders or or remove the the imposters in the area they were supposed to take, and so faithlessly they went up and took over an area that wasn't supposed to be for them. Abram chased up, defeated their enemies, and got the people back, and what's cool about the fact that we went to Israel last year is that there is an old mud gate to a city not not that far from Dan that dates back to this time, so you could go and stand in front of an archway that Abram would have probably gone past or gone through in the moment of this battle thousands and thousands of years ago. This stuff really happens, and it's always worth here on the tip of Africa, miles away from where these stories took place, remembering these are geographically located, historically accurate stories, not fables. And you can go to the place and see where it really went down. And so Abram goes off, has this battle. Now he's won, and he's coming back with the loot and the spoils and the innocent people that he's rescued. Um, And he's got some other kings with him now at this point. The king of Sodom kind of wants to get in on the action, and he's around. And then they bump into this strange character. And it's one chapter, and it's bizarre, and it's got hardly any context, and yet this is one of the most beautiful moments of a series of beautiful moments that are going to start unfolding in the Old Testament. And this king of a place called Salem, which means peace, so the king of a place called peace, with no lineage, with no anything that's going to happen afterwards, he pops up at this point in the Bible, and not again until New Testament authors start referencing him, turns up, Melchizedek, with no lineage, with no explanation for why he's there, he just turns up. And he's called the priest of God, and he's got this badass title, the king of peace, and Abram encounters Melchizedek and just can't help but worship him, and Melchizedek arrives and have communion together, the symbol of the crucifixion already happening in the New Testament, way before the new covenant has even been instituted, and um, in awe, in automatic reaction to the glory of Melchizedek, to whatever was impressive about Melchizedek, Abram gives, tithes to him, gives 10% of the spoils of war, and then this other king is starting to try and make treaties with Abram and say, Well, well how about uh, you take some of my wealth as well? And Abram, in reaction to the, whatever he's just experienced, whatever's just been revealed to him by Melchizedek, says, No, I'm not taking anything from anyone else. And makes a huge faith step, saying, I'm not going to take what's due to me from this battle because I don't want anyone else to be able to say they made me wealthy. I want God to get all the credit. I'm not going to explain that much more than to just leave that sitting there as this weird, mysterious thing that took place um, where God or some agent of God or many would suspect actually Jesus turns up in the middle of the Old Testament, confronts Abram, and causes all kinds of faith reactions afterwards. The thing I want you to notice is that that's the context for the prototypical faith that Abram is about to show. So Abram is about to show some faith and react in certain ways that we're, according to Paul, supposed to look at as a model for us. And it all starts with a revelation, I think, of Jesus. It doesn't start with a good decision. It doesn't start with good theology. It doesn't start with any fancy Sunday school. It starts with nothing but a revelation of Jesus. And in the presence of God, something changes inside Abram, Not enough to stop him making dumb decisions. He still goes and makes some dumb decisions. But something changes enough inside him that now faith is possible. A revelation of Jesus makes faith possible. So sometime later, after this revelation of Jesus, God speaks to Abram and says, Don't be afraid. I'll protect you. Your reward will be great. So we're back in Genesis 15. But Abram replied, Oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? It's quite appetite. Um, But he's annoyed about the fact that he's got no heir. Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. So having a full moan. And in that context, this is quite a big deal. This would have been a huge source of... Pain and disappointment to Abram that God is doing something with him clearly, and yet there's not going to be any legacy to it. There's not going to be any go forward. Um, then the Lord said to him, No, your servant won't be your heir, for you'll have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And this next line is the line that Paul will quote later in Romans 4 and elsewhere going, This is what it looks like to be saved. This is what every single one of you, if you're a Christian, have experienced. Abraham was the prototype for something that all of you will practically quote in your heart. Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Not because of his good works. Not because of his moral purity. Not because of anything he did at all. Simply because he believed this promise that God had given him. God goes, that counts as righteousness. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. You know, Abram starts by saying, oh, sovereign Lord. And God finishes the conversation by reminding him just how sovereign he's been. I picked you, and I've taken you on a journey. And the sovereignty of God is another way of saying the power of God, the control of God, the fact that he gets his way, the fact that he's in charge. And many of us chafe a little bit under heavy teaching about the sovereignty of God because it makes it sound like my actions are irrelevant. Clearly they're not because it was the faith of Abram that was credited to him as righteousness. So choosing to believe God was a big deal. It was a big behavior of Abram's. But I do want to just pause on this idea of the sovereignty of God. The idea that he's actually in control of your life. That he actually gets his way. That his power is actually big enough that he's not surprised by what goes on. And as I say, I've often found that a slightly uninspiring doctrine i've always preferred the doctrines of faith and my responsibility and what i get to do in response to god's goodness when you just start talking about the fact that god is in control it can start to feel a bit like he's micromanaging my life and how is that really fair anyway but even if it's not discomforting to you for those of you that it is i just want to ask you to just stick under this idea for just a little longer because it should mean that god is relating to you not based on anything about you which is equal parts Really disheartening because I like the idea that maybe God saw something special in me and that's why He likes me. It's equal parts disheartening and hugely comforting because it means you can't blow it, you can't mess it up. There's no reason to believe that Abram was any more worthy than any of the other residents of Ur of the Chaldeans. But God said, I'm taking you, I'm going to take you and do something great. Nothing in Abram caused him to be chosen in the first place, nothing in Abram caused him to be counted as righteous. Simply the fact that he went, Okay, God. And there is something hugely powerful about starting to recognize your relationship with God is not predicated, it's not built on, it's not caused by anything in you. It's caused totally by everything that's good about Him. Which means already you should start to get the impression, there's some stuff for me to do to take advantage of this relationship. There's some stuff I can do maybe to deepen this relationship. There's some stuff I can do to experience more of the benefits of this relationship, sure, a whole lot of other personal responsibility remains on the table. But the fact that you're in a relationship with God, you can't blow it because you didn't cause it. He picked you. He chose you. He picked Abram. He chose him. And in that sovereignty, we get to take a huge amount of comfort. So there's been this epic promise from a sovereign God who says, all right, I picked you, I'm taking you, and no, you are going to have an heir, even though Abram is madala at this point, and his wife is old as well, and some commentators might say senile. I think that's a little unfair, because in the next chapter, an old lady laughs, and so now they've decided that she's senile. I can see how they could make that link. Um, But there's no real reason to believe that she's senile. But they are both very old. Uh, And so the idea that God is um, saying you will still have offspring is challenging, right? Uh, And so, but anyway, Abram believes God and is counted to him as righteousness. And so then, a little while later, this is how the conversation goes in chapter 16. Sarai, whose name is also going to change later, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. uh, But she had an Egyptian servant, girl named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Interesting. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. Idiot. Um... (laughs) Uh, So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, gave her to Abram as a wife. And this happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. Um, Okay, let's just finish this bit and then I'll make a few comments. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. And when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. So great. Um, I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. I mean, that's just a bad day for Abram, right? It's just a deeply, deeply bad day for Abram. So some interesting stuff has gone on here. Big promise from God, off the back of epic revelation of God. So Abram's experienced something of Jesus, then heard the promise of God, reacted in faith the story of every one of your Christian lives, if you're a Christian. You've experienced something of Jesus, responded in faith. And then there's a moment when faith is going to meet its first enemy. And it's not necessarily going to be unbelief. It's not going to be sin. It's not going to be some great Richard Dawkins argument that you're going to see on YouTube. The thing that's going to challenge faith first, and often most commonly and most effectively, is convenience. Just Squirrel that away in the back of your mind, that the thing that erodes faith most often is convenience, not apostasy, not believing something totally opposite to what you initially believed. Now, you still believe the promise of God, but you just start to notice a convenient way of getting that promise met that possibly doesn't rely on God so much. I find it amazing that Sarai, she says two incredible things. First, she says, it's the Lord that's prevented me from having children. What a fascinating thing. Don't we often dress up our unbelief in theological terms? I mean, God is the one who's promised they're going to have children. God is the one who's chosen them. And yet Soraya doesn't want to say, I just don't think it's true. She dresses it up in nice Christian easy terms. No, it's actually God that stopped me being able to have children. And I think we do that so often with our disappointments. It's just easier. It just fits in our minds more neatly to say, this thing that's causing me so much disappointment, let me just chalk that up to God. Let me say it's... it's, this is actually okay, as opposed to wrestling and sitting in the deeply unpleasant experience of he promised me something and I'm going to believe for it even while it's not taking place. That's an excruciating place to sit. That's a logically almost impossible place to sit. And that's so much of the life of faith is in that gap between the promise and the realization of the promise, we have to believe two simultaneously different things. A, what my eyes are telling me. B, what the promise says is gonna come true. And there's this awful, excruciating, beautiful experience we're called to have, believing something that's not yet come true. And so often in that space, that's hard to stay in, we just theologize it a little bit. We put some Christian news to it to kind of settle the tension. I will, I will clearly... God must have meant something slightly different, because if he'd meant that, then it would have happened already. Um, and so let me just excuse myself from having to stay in this difficult place by putting some theology on it. And so Sar- Sarai goes, well, God has prevented me from stopping children, having children, uh, so there must be some other way. Oh, convenient, Egyptian girl, right here. Um, let's go that route. But that's not a convenient route, is it? It's a brutal route. Imagine a wife saying that. So another thing to notice is just how And I think we need to honor this and notice this. Just how excruciating disappointment actually is. That it would lead a wife to contemplate what she would never otherwise contemplate. And possibly, can I ask you just to be a little introspective for a moment? Because we don't tend to admit this. But where there's been some disappointment, some I had hoped in your life, it is so excruciating that it might very well cause you to do something that otherwise by itself would be painful. But somehow that looks like a better idea than living in this disappointment. Living in this excruciating tension between I'm going to somehow still believe this promise that hasn't come true yet. It's a brutally difficult place to live. And so many of us don't honor that and notice that and go, wow, that's, that's really hard. That's a big cost of the life of faith. And I am likely to make some bad decisions in that much pain. I'm likely to choose some stuff that otherwise I would never consider when faced with the alternative of just living in that excruciating tension. It's a beautiful place to live, but it's a hard place to live. And if you don't acknowledge how hard it is, you might not notice how much convenience is having its way with you. And so Sarai thinks the unthinkable and suggests that her husband sleeps with someone else because as awful as that might be, that will settle this tension. That will make the problem go away. Convenience will get us something like the promise of God so we can go on still believing all the things we want to believe while also believing what our eyes are telling us. (sighs) Tension resolved. But of course it's not something dreadful takes place as Abram is about to discover because the idiot believes the thing his wife tells him is okay when actually it's not okay. Um, And so he has this encounter with Hagar, she's now pregnant, and the relational wheels just start to fall off. Um, And she has this great line at the end, God will judge between the two of us and decide who is in the right and who is in the wrong. Do you see how once you've started down the road of convenience as opposed to faith, I know you probably can't build a massive generic argument on this, but division is so hot on the heels of that, isn't it? When you make a faithless decision, the next thing you know, division enters into relationships. And and division is one of the things in the church that is most destructive, one of the things that Paul and and church founders dealt with in the most severe terms. Division that gets into this community, this beautifully united community that we hear about and all the rest of Olive Tree and are jealous of the relationships that you have and the connections that you have, is going to be under attack. And one of the ways that this unity here is going to be under attack is where faithlessness is allowed to rise, and people start to make faithless decisions. And I don't say that without empathy, because I know how incredibly excruciating it is to hold faith while you're in struggle. But when some of us start to go, well, we're just going to resolve the struggle by saying it's your fault, or God's fault, or someone else's fault, and we're going to simplify it and take some convenient theological route to just addressing the tension. The next thing you know, and you've seen this in church, right, then there's camps, I believe it's her fault, I believe it's God's fault, I believe it's this, I believe we never should have been trusting for that, and now we have these weird factions within, which is exactly what's gone on between Sarai and Abraham, convenience, faithlessness, making a bad decision, and the next thing they're on opposite sides of a camp, and they're fighting one another, as opposed to doing what a community of faith is supposed to do, which is stand by one another and go, we are going to trust for the same thing, even while it's painful, and we're going to encourage one another towards more faith, even in the now but not yet, which is what you're so good at doing, don't. Be surprised when that comes under attack. And we're dressing up in theological terms. Doubt. But because we've dressed it up in theological terms, now there's division and there are camps. Be careful of that. So they've blown it, right? This is the God turning his back. Oh, it's the proteus choking again. I picked the wrong guy. Abram and Sarai gave them this great promise, and they've blown it. They've messed up, and this is not something that is fresh. Abram, and God would have known this, is going to continually take the easy route out and say, oh, she's actually my sister, so that some foreign king doesn't end up killing him to get to her. He's, like, consistently weak. So God should be putting his head in his hands, going, well, the Land Rover's not going to start this time. But instead, he says the following in Genesis 17. When Abram was nearly 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. So God is still on about the same promise years later. A part of me might be like, God, don't go there. There's been so much disappointment. Don't talk about that again. Like You told me you were going to do that 20, 30, however many years ago. It still hasn't happened For the sake of our relationship, let's just not talk about that white elephant. But God goes straight back there, still promising the same thing. Now it's even more impossible, but he's not afraid to have that conversation. I'll make my covenant with you, by which I guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. I'm changing your identity. You will be called... Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God, the God of your descendants after you, and I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. There's this huge thing going on here that God is daring Abraham to finally nail his colors to the mast and go, fine, I'm going to trust him. Even though I've blown it, even though there are all sorts of reasons why he shouldn't have put his faith in me in the first place, even though there was nothing special when I was an heir of the Chaldeans, I've blown it since then, I will blow it again in the future. I am not faithful, but God's going to continue to work with me, so I am just going to live in the tension and trust him. That's the better alternative to this half-in, half-out thing. And it's just amazing to me that God keeps going back to this clearly unimpressive, I mean, he was going to build a whole redemption story for humanity off the basis of this guy and the nation he was going to build out of this guy. And it's like, God, pick better stock to begin with. And yet, even though Abram in so many ways was flawed and not up to it, and every other hero of faith through the rest of the Bible was so clearly flawed and not up to it, in the sovereignty of God, he goes, I'll use you, I'll use you. I'll use you I'll use you and there's nothing you can do that can stop it because there was nothing about you that caused it in the first place there's this huge kind of banner over all of the personality of God described best in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 if we are unfaithful he remains faithful for he cannot deny who he is this is the God in whose presence we are in today he is faithful it is who he is nothing you can do can change that And when he's got an appointment with you, when he's got a plan to do something with you, when he's decided he loves you, you can't stop it. You can do some other things. You're still in the relationship. You're not just some nameless thing having a relationship with a robot. You're still going to get to engage with God and discover more intimacy with him or less, depending on how you behave. You're going to discover more trust from him or less, depending on how faithful you are with the little he gives. There's still plenty for you to do. But as far as being in the relationship with him and being loved by him, you simply can't stop it. No matter how faithless you are, no matter how many times you've blown it, because it was always based on his character, it was never based on your character. If you think that that thing has happened for the tenth time, surely God's put his head in his hands. That that weakness has surfaced again, surely he's going to just give up on you. That that struggle in your life, you probably subtly deserve. I just want to tell you, you're not that powerful. You're not that powerful. You can't change God's character. I'm sorry to tell you. You're not that impressive that you're able to turn a faithful God who cannot deny himself into a faithless God who's not going to react to your failures. He's never done it before. He's not going to start with you. He's never given up on anyone else. Why would he start giving up on you? It's simply not who he is. It's not in his nature, according to the scripture, according to the way he's revealed himself, not just in 2 Timothy, but in every single interaction he's had with anyone throughout history. Just try and see if you can stop God loving you. It can't be done. The Israelites were unfaithful in the desert over and over and over. It caused delays. It didn't change God's plan for them. Moses was a murderer and a traitor who then, when God gave him a great job, said, well, maybe choose someone else because I don't speak that well. And God still chose to use him because he keeps his promises. Samson allowed lust to cause him to do the very thing God said he shouldn't do. And yet God still used him because he keeps his promises. Jonah was told to go preach to the Ninevites, so he went 4,000 miles in the other direction, and God not only saved his life with the whale, which is just amazing um, and challenging, but God did that and then used Jonah to preach so that Nineveh would repent and be changed. Um, David had an affair with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. God still kept his promises to him. Naomi and her family, as we discovered in the Ruth series last year, chose to go and live with an idolatrous people because it was just too hard to stay in the Bethlehem area believing the promises of God. That tension was just too excruciating, so they went conveniently somewhere else. But God still had a plan for them and still kept his promises to him. And Abram and Sarai, despite the convenience of this other child, Ishmael, God said, no, I've got a supernatural way that I'm going to work. And so Isaac was still born later in their ancient years. We're just... Getting in the sack, I imagine, was an act of faith. Um, there's a line. Let's just go there, right? I know this is North Coast, and things have happened on the stage that allow me to... Um, the, like, there's, there's a great line in that Genesis. I just want you to go read it. I'm too embarrassed to quote it fully. But it says something like, Abram was strengthened. I'm just like, okay. Clearly needed it. Um, and, and yet, whatever it is, that you think makes you somehow more impressive than that catalogue of heroes of faith who blew it, that now the way you've blown it is going to be the first time in history that God stops working with you. You're just not that powerful. He is faithful, even when you're faithless. Other people are faithful as well, though. Let's just mention that whatever else I end up putting my faith in, aside from God, whatever other convenient route, whatever other idol, whatever other thing I think is going to make it okay when I want to opt out of that excruciating place between the promise and the fulfillment, that thing is faithful as well to hurt you every time. As we saw with the story of Abram and Sarai, the convenient route, the Hagar route, just produced pain. Maybe not in the immediate, oh, well, this gets me the result that I think God promised. I'm sure he's okay with it. My wife says she's okay with it. No, it's going to cause pain if not now, eventually. That other route, that convenient route that seems to resolve the tension of God has promised something, I've not yet seen it, so I'm going this way, will absolutely be faithful to cause you pain. Because every other God, small g, is deeply untrustworthy. And if I'm not trusting this amazingly good God whose promises are still enough to sustain me even when they haven't yet been realized, then I'm trusting something else. And other gods are cruel. And if it hasn't hurt you yet, I promise you it's faithful to hurt you eventually. And I wonder, I mean, we can't make a solid theological case for this. But I wonder if this, the time God's people spend worshipping other gods delays the length of time until the promise comes true. It will come true. God doesn't give up on his people. But Israel had to spend enough time in the wilderness to finally work out these other gods are cruel before God could really be used by God. And I wonder if this massive length of time that Abram and Sarai had to wait before eventually Isaac was born could have been shortened if they had just started as they or finished as they began, trusting God. And I don't say that as a threat, because as I say, I don't know. And there are sometimes it seems like God just works immediately regardless of our faithlessness. But it would seem to me that the more wholeheartedly I can trust God, the safer I am for him to bless Because my heart is in the right place. My relationship with him is in the right place. And I might shortcut and avoid all kinds of unnecessary pain if I just choose to trust him in the first place. But even if you do choose to take the long way, even if you do choose to be unfaithful, even if you do continue to trust all kinds of other really worthless gods, he is still faithful to you no matter what you do. And eventually he will work everything for good in your life. I just want to finish with some practical questions for us to ask in light of this he's so good and my but god moment might be about to happen or it may take another 10 years but he's so good he can sustain me in that process he has chosen me sovereignly he's good to me and so i can always rely on that i can't blow this i'm not powerful enough to change god's character all that good stuff right so if that's going to result in actions like we saw with abram not just choosing to trust God and have it credited to him as righteousness, but then choose to trust God for the son, choose to trust God with circumcision. I mean, that's just like amazing. God gives them the sign that they can then use as a nation to represent the fact that they are a people of faith. And Paul in Romans 4 goes to great lengths to show it's not the circumcision that made them righteous, but this was this gift that God gave. You as a people get to do something that shows that you're set apart as a people who trust me. All these steps that Abram went on to take, and people like Moses, and people like David, who took radical steps of faith. Can you imagine if you're Abram, and you've just won a battle, and it's been expensive and costly and risky, and you're heading home, and now you have this opportunity to set up generations with the loot from this battle. And you encounter Jesus, and the first thing you do is want to give 10%, and then you have an opportunity to take some of your ill-gotten gain from some dodgy business partner, and you say, I'm not going to take any of it, not even what was fair, because I don't want anyone else to think that you made me rich. Can you imagine what that means in your business life? The level of faith it requires to to say no, to, to give things back, because you're going to choose to trust God with your finances. If we're going to be people like that, who build our lives based on a faithful God, then I think there's two questions we need to ask. And the first is, what revelation of Jesus do I need to live that way? If faith is a response, if all the stuff that Abram went through started with a little while later and references the fact that he bumped into Jesus or some agent of Jesus in the Old Testament, and I mean, if you're wondering if that's sketchy, I just want you to hear John 8 verse 56. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Your father, Abram, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is claiming that Abram actually saw him, saw the new covenant, saw the crucifixion somehow, saw the day of Jesus, which I think lends a whole lot of credibility to the idea that Abram had a revelation of Jesus somehow, this epic sacrifice that was going to make things right when the king of peace, Melchizedek, arrived and had communion with him. What revelation of Jesus might you need to live a life of faith in an area where currently convenience is having its way with you? The solution is not to put more pressure on yourself. The solution is not to beat yourself for being such a doubter, such a loser, such a weak Christian. Don't enter into that conversation. The conversation should be, "There's, there's more of him. And if I could experience more of him, the behavior would naturally result. Faith would naturally rise in that area if I could just encounter Jesus more. So that's the first question. What do you need to go chasing after God for as a revelation of him that's going to allow more faith to grow? Don't fall into the trap of thinking faith is something you can drum up or muster up or work for. The only way you're going to get more faith is if you experience more of the goodness of God. Then faith is a natural response. So the first question, what revelation of Jesus do you need? And then the second question might sound a bit odd. But the second question is then what revelation of you do you need? What needs to change in you? And the change is going to simply be coming into line with who you already are. I love the fact that God changed Abraham's name. Changed his identity. Before you even had a kid, says you're father of many nations. Before you've even done a cool thing, you're already called a saint. And God has given you a new name, given you a new identity. And so part of the journey of faith is recognizing him more clearly. And part of the journey of faith is recognizing yourself more clearly. Talking to yourself more reasonably. You're not some weakling in this area. You're not some spiritual midget, if that's politically incorrect enough for the North Coast. Um, no, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need. Your identity is loved, faithful, dominating, overcoming son or daughter of God. That's who you really are. And so part of the conversation is, okay, God, give me a better revelation of you. And part of the conversation is, okay, God, give me a better revelation of myself. So in this area where convenience just seems so irresistible, I start to be able to see it for what it really is. and go, no, no, my God has a plan for me and his promise is enough. And if I have to wait one day or 10 days or the rest of my life, I'm going to choose to live in the excruciating, beautiful tension of he's promised it, so that's enough. And no matter how many times I've blown this before, no matter how many mistakes you've made, it doesn't change anything because he is faithful even when you're faithless. And he chose you, not because of anything about you, but simply because of who he is. Father, we are in awe that the God of the universe who breathes out stars, who is Unapproachably holy, who is glorious in every sense of that word and more that we can't even imagine, in whose presence none can stand, that you would choose to relate to us with this kindness and patience and detail, that you would choose to look at every single life in this room this morning and say, I chose you, I called you, and I will work with you I've made promises to you, and no matter how little you trust those, no matter how many long routes you've taken out into other directions, trusting other gods, I am going to remain faithful to you regardless of how faithless you are. That you, God, would relate to us like that is awe inspiring. I pray that in our desire to respond appropriately to a God like that, that you'd reveal your Son to us more clearly. And then you'd reveal ourselves to us more fully so that we can live as you've called us to live.